Hello, and welcome to the NLP Highlights podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are members of the Allen NLP team at the Allen Institute for AI. All right. Hello, and welcome to today's NLP Highlights podcast episode. We're going to be talking about preparing application materials for PhD applications in NLP. As our guest, we have joining us Roma Patel, who is a third-year PhD student at Brown University studying with Ellie Pavlik. And we have as our other guest, Nathan Schneider, an assistant professor of linguistics and computer science at Georgetown University. Welcome, Roma and Nathan. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Great to be here. For your co-hosts, we have myself, Alexis Ross, and Nishant Subramani, who are pre-doctoral researchers on the Allen NLP team at AI2. Welcome, Nishant. Thank you. Thank you. Excited to be here. All right. So to get started, we were thinking it would be great to talk about how to decide whether to do a PhD at all. Roma, maybe you could share some of your experiences as someone who has applied and enrolled in a PhD program. What are the kinds of things that someone should be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it differs for every person. So some people, as soon as they finish undergrad, they've maybe worked in a research project at some point during their undergrad, and they just like have this very strong intrinsic motivation to just continue to do research and not do anything else. And that's a very clear sign that you should apply at that point. There are lots of other people who are still very clearly fit for a PhD and probably would be super happy doing a PhD, but still like don't have that same determination maybe they're conflicted about whether or not they might want to spend some time in industry and then take the step forward and decide if they want to do a PhD. And for those cases also, I think it's good to just ask yourself whether or not you want to spend the next few years working on a research project with an advisor at a university, or if you would be happier being at a company working in industry. So I think just like asking yourself that one question, which is, do I really want to do research for the next four years? Or am I happy enough working at a company just like doing software engineering is a pretty good sign of whether or not you know you want to do a PhD. Yeah, great. So a follow up to that question, maybe there are people who are listening who are thinking they want to they want to gain a little bit more experience doing research, but are not sure if they want to fully commit to a PhD program. So for those people, a master seems like kind of a great option. Nathan, maybe you could talk a little bit about the differences between doing a PhD and a master's and whether there are differences in the kinds of opportunities you get, how can someone decide what kind of program is right for them? So, yeah, so this is a great question. I think the many people, especially in the general public, do not have a great understanding of what a PhD is. I think a lot of people sort of assume that you do well in high school, you go to college, you do you take classes, study hard, you get your college degree, and then if you want to get more advanced, you can take some more classes and get a master's. And then if you want to get really, really advanced, you can get a PhD and be eligible to teach at a university. But what people don't realize is that a PhD is qualitatively different from the master's and, and undergrad level. A PhD is training to become an independent researcher in a discipline, right? So the PhD is all about the research. And if you take classes, as many as typically you do in a U.S. PhD program, the classes are to level up your knowledge to the point where you can do really advanced research. So if you're thinking, oh, I'm not sure what I want to do next, a PhD seems like the next thing for people who are smart and want to learn a lot, I would suggest to give that a second thought. PhD is really hard work. And it's really focused on, on the research. So you, you want to make sure you're committed to putting in many years to develop yourself as a researcher. 
Another important difference to consider between master's and PhD is that typically uh, PhD positions, especially in computer science and engineering and so on, typically they come with funding. So your university will pay your tuition and stipend, whereas a master's program is usually something that where the, the student is paying for it. And often the first couple of years of a PhD in the U.S. system will be functionally equivalent to a master's, except maybe you're doing some research additionally. But so if you are sure you want to eventually take up the research mantle, it can make sense to apply directly to a PhD because then you get funding. But if you mainly want to gain some more academic experience that you can then take to industry, maybe master's is the more appropriate direction. Cool. And in thinking about whether to do a PhD, I think a natural question that people will have is, well, do I need one for the kind of job that I want to have eventually? So it would be great to hear maybe, Nathan, your perspective on the kinds of careers that require a PhD. If someone wants to do industry in research, is that required? If they want to teach at, at a university, is it required? Yeah. Could you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So I, I, would, want to, I would say if you want to build a career as a researcher and, and have the sort of directing your own research projects or leading research to some extent, you probably need a PhD. There are, of course, ways in which not only students, but professionals in industry can participate in a research project by helping with development, helping with the, the steps of the process. But the idea is that, again, this gets back to the independent training to be an independent researcher. So the a PhD is someone who the company can trust will be able to identify problems that are relevant to the company, can figure out this, navigate the steps of the research progress, can know about what how the academic research community is like, what it means to publish papers, and so on. So it's really the, the leadership role in research definitely requires a PhD. And also, if you want to teach at a, an institute of higher education, a lot of those positions require a PhD, certainly the tenure track research-oriented ones, and a lot of the, even a lot of the teaching-oriented positions require a PhD. Although, yeah, I will say that the landscape of research has like changed significantly in the last few years. So, for example, you can do research in industry now. And it's also not the case that you need to have a PhD in order to get like a research industry position anymore. Although they are primarily, I think the majority of people who do research in industry do tend to have PhDs. But it has changed in that there are opportunities for people who don't have PhDs to still do research in industry. But I think, as Nathan said, like, it's very true that this leadership and independence probably differs a little bit when you're a professor and you're leading your own lab. You have complete control over everything that you want to do in your agenda, which differs a little bit when you're in an industry lab, even if it's still the same research that you're doing, because the control over there is probably distributed in different ways. So yeah, I completely agree. But I also think that it's just like, this new era has opened up lots of possibilities for what you can do without a PhD, which is very promising for the people who don't want to do PhDs. Awesome. That's a, yes, I think that's a great segue into, let's say you're a person who's decided that, hey, I want to commit, go down this PhD track. This seems like something that excites me. This seems like something that I may require in terms of a future job prospect or job, but Maybe this person is early on in their career or 
doesn't feel like they have enough experience in the area that they're that they're targeting. What are some ways, Roma, that this type of person could find research opportunities, and how difficult are these often to find? Yeah, so I think it it often depends on where you are, like which university you're at, or what point in your academic career you are at. So for example, if you're a freshman at a university that doesn't have a lot of academics doing research, that's a lot harder than also being someone older, for example, a senior who's about to graduate and can apply to industry academic or just like the industry pre-doctoral programs that people have. And also if you're a senior at that point, you've probably done enough that gives you the tools to do research with uh, professors at your university. So I think that it differs depending on where you are. But I think a good place to start is look at the university that you're at. If you're an undergrad, for example, or a master's student, look at some professors and the research that they're doing and maybe try to reach out to them, go to their lab meetings, learn about the research that's happening at those places, read some papers in your free time. And that's a pretty good start to firstly know if you like what is happening around you and also know if this is what you maybe want to do during your PhD for five years when you're applying. And that also just opens up a lot of new, exciting ideas and you're learning things about research that's happening. And that's always a good thing. But there are often these pre-doctoral programs that you can apply to if you're about to graduate and want like something to fill up a year before you make a decision about whether or not you want to do a PhD. So that's always a good option. And I think it's less common for undergrads to have research internships in the summers, but it's definitely true that you can still get an internship at some place during your undergrad and try to do research with some people there like your managers which is usually a good way to find out whether or not you like what you're doing and if you feel strongly about it then that's a clear sign that you should be applying. Roma did you have research-oriented internships uh, before you started your PhD? I did I did a program so John Hopkins has the JSALT program which is not technically an internship but it's this kind of it's kind of a program where they get undergrads and master's students together and you treat it as an internship or like this long six-week hackathon. That's actually where Alexis and I met each other. We were both part of it. They tried to treat it as an internship, but it's not really an internship, but we do primarily do research over there. So that was a good segue into learning how to do research when you're an undergrad. I have known, I do know some people who have been undergrads and have been lucky enough to just like have managers that let them do research during their like just software engineering internships at just like places like Google. But I think that's, that's usually not the norm. It's usually just like the rare case of having a manager who will let you explore things. That makes sense. Yeah, that, that's, that's great advice. In terms of, you mentioned if that individual is sitting in a, at a university at some stage, one possible way to get involved in research is to presumably email a bunch of, a bunch of professors whose research aligns well. So Nathan, I wanted to ask you, I'm sure you get numerous of these emails every week or so. What are some things that you look for and what are some what are some tips on presumably a lot of a lot of these emails will come back or won't come back, right? They'll come back ignored. What are some ways to yeah, not be discouraged by all of those failed attempts? Yeah, so I guess I would say that professors get a lot of email and it can be overwhelming to respond to all of them. So don't be discouraged if somebody doesn't, if a professor doesn't respond to your email, chances are it means they're not yet looking for summer intern or whatever type of position you're 
inquiring about. If we're talking also about email related to PhD applications, I would say that some professors just prefer to read the applications before they start engaging with candidates over email just because it's it's so many emails to, to deal with. That makes sense. That's something that I don't envy in terms of the amount of emails that I'm sure you get, probably get more in a week than I do in a year. Yeah. I mean, occasionally one of those emails is a good fit for what for what I'm looking for, but but usually there's just it, it's great that there are a lot of people who are who are looking for opportunities and I can't satisfy all of them, unfortunately. So following up on that, when these emails are successful, what would you say are the properties that make that email a good one? So if someone is in, interested in reaching out to professors who have similar research interests and they want to make sure that they craft a good email, whether to get a research opportunity or to learn about a PhD program. Nathan, could you say a little bit about that? I would say keep it relatively short. We don't have time to read pages and pages of prose about you, probably. You can maybe a brief email stating who you are, what your interests are with attaching your CV could be a way to go because then if the professor is interested, they can look at the CV. I guess another point I would make before emailing professors, look on their websites to see if they say anything about their email policies. I think I have a disclaimer about about emailing me. It's great that there are so many people looking for opportunities, but just keep in mind that that. It's a, there's a many to one ratio in these situations. That makes sense. That's a great advice. I wanted to ask Roma, following up on your suggestion about pre-doctoral and residency positions being a great next step for people who are maybe graduating undergrad or graduating a program. How important do you think these sort of positions are in terms of the application process and strength of application for a PhD program? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I wouldn't really think of it as something that adds to an application. So at least when I was applying to PhDs and when I had friends that were also applying to programs, we mostly viewed the pre-doctoral programs as fallbacks. So you apply to these programs at the same time when you're applying to your PhD. And if you don't get into any PhD programs that you're super excited about and you do happen to get into one of these, that's a very good alternative because one, that probably means that at that point you weren't prepared enough to do a PhD. All of the people that you wanted to work with were too busy or they thought you weren't qualified enough for whatever reason. So it's a very good fit to try to spend a year just working with people in industry who are doing very good research and learn more things and more tools that will help you make you a better researcher and then you can apply again. I guess it's definitely true that you could also not consider applying to PhDs at all, apply to pre-doctoral programs, spend a year or two over there, and then reconsider applying to PhDs, which is a pretty good strategy also. And over there, I think that definitely does help your application because at this point, you've not only done a full undergrad degree in computer science or linguistics that have taught you a lot of like the theoretical things in a class setting that you would need in order to do research, but you've also actually spent a year just like practically implementing all of these things in industry. And you've been advised by people who clearly know what they're doing and are publishing very good papers. So that definitely does make your application stronger. And I think both of these are good strategies. The first one being just keeping it as an alternative to doing a PhD. And the second one, which is doing it before you even apply to PhD programs. I would be curious to hear Nathan's perspective on, um, I don't know, like how do you view applicants who've 
who either like have this in their application statement or are considering doing it alternatively? So I don't know how if these are super common, but it seems like pre-doctoral programs are a really good experience for in research. And that always strengthens an, an application, particularly if you're making connections or if you're if you're getting a publication out of it, or if you're making connections with people who can speak to your research potential and accomplishments. So I, I would definitely not say don't apply for a PhD right out of undergrad because everyone is doing pre-doctoral things. That's not the case in my experience, but it can be a great opportunity. Well, I guess I would say the only danger probably from a professor's point of view is I think this happens fairly often, but once you're in a pre-doctoral program, you see the luxurious industry life. You probably don't want to subject yourself <laughs> to a PhD after that. And I think it, I don't know if this is fairly common, but there are definitely instances where people just say, yeah, thank you for accepting me to your PhD program, but I think I'm just going to stay at Google. And that happens fairly often. So that's definitely one risk factor that I think professors might be wary about. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense for sure. Yeah, I would probably not worry about that from a from an admissions standpoint but when i when in the admissions process you get to finalists and you interview them and one of the things i would try to probe is do they seem like they're ready to commit to a phd so so now let's say let's say this hypothetical person has uh decided that they're definitely going to apply they've gotten some of the some of the experience necessary Roma, what are the kind of most important steps of the application process? Yeah, so I think one of the most important things is trying to narrow down a list of schools and importantly, professors that you want to work with during your PhD. I think having advisors in mind that you know you would be compatible with, whose research you're very excited about, who are at a university that you're happy about and would want to be at, are probably one of the most important things that you would need to narrow down at the beginning. Apart from that, I think writing your statement is very important. Your statement should be, it should reiterate why you want to do a PhD, what you want to do in your PhD, and why you specifically want to do it with that professor and at that institution, which gives that professor, when they're reading your statement, some insight into why they should accept you. And just like a little hint of what it would be like if you were their PhD student. So your statement should try to enumerate all of those aspects. And I think from there, and of course, like your grades and GRE scores, if any schools need it, matter a little bit. But I think the main things that I would really focus on are finding professors that you're excited about, doing a lot of research on what they're doing, what they're interested in, and if that's really what you want to do, and then writing your statement and thinking more about what you would want to do during your PhD and why you would want to do it with that professor. Yeah, I totally agree. And one thing I would add is that you should feel free to reach out to mentors that you already have when you're considering applying. Ask them whether they think you should, you're should. you ready to apply. To ask them if they have any recommendations of advisors to potentially work with or schools to apply to. I know it was very helpful when I was applying to, to know someone in the field who was, who was able to sort of give feedback on the, uh, the schools I was thinking of applying to. And then also related to mentors you already have, it's important to get uh, strong letters of recommendation. And those should be from people who know you. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm stepping into the next, uh, the next part of the schedule, but 
people who know you well and have seen you in action, ideally doing research and, and that you've talked to and they know what you're looking for in a PhD. Yeah, so that's a great point that you raise about rec letters. I think a lot of people applying have questions about the trade-offs that exist between different possible letter writers that you could ask. So how, what would you recommend if, let's say there's a senior, a more senior person in the field who doesn't know you as well, but a professor, maybe a more recently started professor who knows you very well is also able to write, write you a rec letter. What is the better choice there, Nathan? In my opinion, it's the person who knows you better, especially if it's a professor who knows you well. Uh, professors, it's part of our job to write letters of recommendation, and the content of the letter matters in terms of can I tell a story about what you have done, what expectations the reader should have of you, right? If it's somebody who took my class and got an A in the class, there's only so much I can say about that. And so I think if if I were to read a letter from a super famous professor, which was basically like, this person did well in my class, that's not going to be terribly persuasive. Uh, as opposed to a letter from somebody, no matter who they are, saying person was very ambitious and took on these projects and was always trying to find out more about things and out, talking to me outside of class and this and that and the other. Sometimes I've seen professors who don't know a student as well, but maybe maybe one of the professor's advisees mentored the student. They can ask the advisee to write a portion of the letter. That makes sense. So the professor has some, what they know of the student, and then they say, here's some additional stuff that, that one of my mentees said about, this, about the prospective student. Also, another consideration is outside letters from, uh, from industry. So if you've done an internship, especially if it's research-related, it may make sense to ask your, your boss on that to write you a letter. If you're coming straight from academia, you probably want at least two letters from professors. But there may be, if you've been in industry for several years and you pivoted into research or something, you know, there may be, there may be other circumstances where professors aren't the only people who can write valuable letters. Yeah. Also, Nathan, I would be curious to hear your thoughts on this. So there was, I think there was this PhD guide a while ago, and I've gotten this question a lot of times that advised undergrads to one, get a letter from someone that you've done research with, and that makes perfect sense. But also one, get a letter from someone you've taken a class with, because that apparently gives you an idea of how good you do in classes and how well you can learn material. And then third, it's also good to get a letter from someone in industry, because that gives you an idea of how well you can like practically implement things and have like coding skills. And then a lot of undergrads, when they read this, they get very apprehensive because a lot of them haven't done internships, don't have that many professors related to classes that they would be excited about, but they have a lot of research experience and they have professors that they've done research with. So I was wondering if you would, if you wanted to weigh on that and you would. So in my mind, I feel like the right thing to do is choose the research professors because that's the most important thing. But I always get these conflicting questions of, no, that guide said, you need someone that can talk about your classes or someone that can talk about your coding skills. Yeah, I mean, my personal, what I look for is that this person shows strong promise and experience in research. So I would rather see three letters along those lines than one saying, because we see your transcript. So we see if you're getting good grades in your courses. 
you can always ask your people writing your letters to say, could you mention that this course was really hard or had a large software development component or something like that? Maybe you're maybe if you give some suggestions for what can go in the letter, that that can that can be a way to work that in. But I would say in general, if you're getting good grades and taking the right classes, I would not necessarily need to see a letter repeating that. I think another question that people have is, what if my research experience is outside of NLP? Let's say I'm bringing in experience from linguistics or psychology. Should I ask the professor I did research with there for a letter? I'm curious to hear your perspective on that, Nathan. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm a big fan of interdisciplinary research. So I think it can be great to have to have researchers to, to have letters from mentors in different fields. But think about the place you're applying to and what and the the faculty members you want to work with and what they value in research, right? So if your letters are saying this person is an is going to be an amazing biologist and you're applying to do NLP, then that might look a little weird. You should make sure your letter writers know why you're asking them and what their argument should be in writing. I'm not saying don't ask a biologist. I'm saying the letter should be at least somewhat tied to your goals of doing research in NLP. Yeah, this is very helpful. I think we let's switch gears and talk about statements of purpose. So that's the other piece that both of you have mentioned is very important. I think before we get into maybe the actual content of a good statement of purpose, it would be great to hear about how to approach the process of writing this in general. Roma, could you share a little bit about like what this timeline looked like for you and how you even approach writing a draft and if you have any tips about that? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. And I think this differs quite significantly for different people. So when we were writing this guide to PhD applications, we tried to just like pull together responses from PhD students to see when they started writing their statement. And I think it varied from one month before or two weeks before to like seven months in advance. So I think whatever works for you is a good enough strategy. But I think having a statement at least two months or a month before the deadline is good, because firstly, what you want is also to maybe give your letter writers your statement to read before they write you a letter because they can look at how motivated you are, what you want to do in your PhD, and then that helps them write their letter as well. So I think that's a good timeline to have, which is enough time that your letter writer should have time to write you a letter as well. And then I think it's also good to maybe try to start writing it at least two months in advance because then it's really just a process of reading it and then having someone review it a little bit and then reiterating on it and writing it again. So you want to leave at least a month of like edits and rewriting to finally make it perfect. And then I think when you're starting to write the letter, your statement of purpose, a good way to start is just to like think about why you want to do your PhD and think about what you maybe have to offer to do the PhD because that's a good that's a good thing for the professor reading your statement to know about you. So list out the class, uh, talk about things that made you excited about research. So maybe a class that you took that spurred this excitement for NLP. Talk about the research that you've done, any papers that you have, or even if you don't have any papers, things that you've read that made you excited about research or research problems that you've thought about and worked on. If you have publications and papers, it's good to describe them maybe in a paragraph to just give the professor reading your statement 
some insight into how you went about approaching that problem, how you solved it, what that process looked like for you. And then maybe have a little section that goes over the things that you know in terms of just like the tools that you're used to and how you normally go about research. And then finally, I think the last paragraph, which is probably the most important one and is specific to each professor, should try to outline why you want to do a PhD with that specific professor and try to tie together your research goals and maybe give them a hint of what you want to do during your PhD and why they should accept you and why you two would be compatible together and be able to work together for five years. Yeah, that is great advice. Thanks, Roma. I think a lot of what you said also tracks, Nathan, what you've written about in your blog post on statements of purpose. Could you talk about, from a faculty member's perspective, what are the criteria that you look for? How do you evaluate them kind of broadly? And we can dive into specifics afterwards. Yeah. So in this blog post, I wrote that there are three main criteria I'm looking for in the statement of purpose, which are qualifications, focus, and fit. So qualifications is what have you done? What do you know that is relevant to starting in a good place for a PhD? Focus is what do you want to do? What are your areas of interest? You probably want to show that you have some sense of the field and and that there are subfields and and important topics within the field that will guide where you're applying to and, and so on. And then the the third piece is fit for the program and potential faculty members that you're applying to. And so this this is especially in this last paragraph that, that Roma mentioned, where you customize that last part for each for each school and you say, here's why I think this department or this uh, advisor would be a good fit for my interests. If you can, maybe specify two potential advisors because you never know. One of them may not be taking students that year or something. So, but, but not so many potential advisors that it looks like you don't have a focus. So I would say the qualifications part is probably what you will have the most material to write about because that's what you've already done. And you can explain some of the, of the research projects you've been involved in, how you were involved in them. Maybe your first one was a team project that you contributed a bit of implementation for, and you can explain sort of what you did there. And then, and then maybe that led to another project where you were mentored by a professor and you did, you did more your own independent project, something like that. I think a common pitfall with talking about qualifications that I've heard is some people can end up kind of repeating their CV. Do you have tips for how to shape a narrative around previous experiences so that you're not just kind of listing what you've previously done? I think one way to think about it is to focus on what was what you found most interesting about those experiences. So what were the topics you were looking at? What do you feel like you learned from them? That sort of thing. I would definitely not approach it as if you were applying for a job as a software engineer and you're listing the the technologies that you know and the skills you have, because that's a very different. So we don't want just a list of skills. We want a demonstration that you have a mind that will that will be a good fit for a PhD and that you're excited about these different scientific directions. And through the things you've done, you can show some of the specific skills you have as well. Cool. And I think another question that people have is, 
should you and how do you talk about various maybe red flags that or things that seem like red flags, like a poor GPA or some gaps in your CV? Are those things that you should talk about in your statement of purpose? And if so, how? Yeah, so it's sort of a double-edged sword. Statement of purpose could be a way to provide more context for you had some personal issue in a given semester and your grades weren't so great or something something of that nature. You know, you started off in a different field and realized it wasn't a good fit and switched relatively late to computer science or linguistics or what have you. So it may be an appropriate place to mention it. It's, I would probably advise, but you, but you don't want to come across as making excuses either and, and sort of focusing the reader's attention on your weaknesses. So it may be a good idea to ask your letter writers what they think, and maybe they can mention the, the issue in, your, in their letter, which will come across as you know, someone who's, who's an authority, authoritative figure explaining context for what happened. I think another question that I've often been asked that I think, Nathan, you can probably weigh in on is how much do professors weigh the qualifications of the past experience against future work? So I know people are very apprehensive about having done things in a very different, still in NLP, but in a very different area that they are now currently excited about. So do you consider that a red flag if someone has done something, I don't know, purely related to like semantic passing and they now want to move to something that's completely different? Or is that still good enough because it's still NLP experience? I would not consider that a red flag. If We expect that people's interests are going to change somewhat, even during their PhD. They, most people don't start a PhD knowing exactly what topic they're going to do their dissertation in. It's a learning experience to discover what you are most excited about and what is a good fit with your advisor and your institution and so on. So I would say if you have... If your background is has NLP research in it, then that's awesome. I'm looking for, do you have some of the more general skills and, and you know, capacity to do research? Even if your past experience is not in NLP research, it can still be, it can still convey some of these skills that are important. So I, I would not assume that you have to have specifically NLP research to apply for a PhD in NLP. Cool. Yeah, I think another question that people have, and this is maybe more related to the criterion of focus, but it's it's who should you write this statement for and how tailored should it be? So, um, Roma, I would love to hear when you were writing your statement, did you kind of write this with a specific advisor or two or three maybe specific advisors in mind? Or were you thinking about having a general person in computer science read your statement? Yeah, that's a good question. And I think a good strategy is to maybe have three fourths of your statement be a general statement, which is it tells a professor what your qualifications are, just all of the outlines that Nathan spoke about. And the last little bit, which is the focus and your compatibility with a professor at a certain institute, is probably something that you want to change for every university. So over here, what you really want to talk about is why you want to be working under that professor and why you want to be at that university. And this should probably talk a little bit about your research interests and what you want to tie together with that person's research interests. And this should hopefully be different with every different person at every different university. So I think a good enough strategy is to at least have the last paragraph be significantly different for all the different universities because you're going to have different things to say. 
But I think it's fine to leave the rest of it the same because that really just outlines your journey through the research that you've done so far. And that shouldn't really change for any different professor or a different university. Yeah. And, and to add to that, I think some of your readers will probably be people in other fields as well, right? So they're, it'll probably go to an admissions committee who will do some sort of filtering and then will direct. So there will be some readers who are, who are in, the, in the department in general and then will hopefully direct your application to faculty members that you mentioned who are especially relevant for them to weigh in on. So, uh, but don't worry too much about like giving a textbook introduction to what NLP is. I think professors are able to recognize when a, a prospective student is writing about their field in a, at an appropriate level of expertise. And if you talk about why you're what topics you're interested in and why and how and what your previous research was on in a way that a, a general person in NLP would understand, then you're probably you're probably in good shape. Cool. I guess one follow up related to this idea of specificity in your personal statement. I think a lot of people wonder how concrete or specific their future directions, their post, proposed plan for research in their PhD should be. I would love to hear both of your perspectives, maybe starting with Roma, when you were talking about what you wanted to work on in your PhD, did you have like concrete projects in mind or was it kind of a general direction? Yeah, I had concrete projects in mind and it's very different from what I'm actually doing now, which <laughs> just goes back to Nathan's point of, I think professors know they're not going to like hold you to anything you write in your statement. And they also know how research works. People's interests change so rapidly, like every new exciting thing that comes along. But I think it's um, I think it's good to still try to enumerate what you're excited about and what you potentially might want to work on. It doesn't have to be a full fledged project, like a logic tree and just like everything that you possibly want to do or even just like the outcomes of that project, but just like a high level idea of something that you maybe want to explore and what you're currently excited about is probably a good thing to have in your statement. But I think, I think it's also fairly common for people to just like generally list the area that they're interested in and not specifically just list out projects. But yeah, I'm curious to hear from Nathan of like what you generally see. Like do people actually just list out concrete projects or do they just talk very abstractly? I think any sort of ideas about what you might want to work on will be helpful. If you have a concrete project idea, great. If you have some general sub areas that you're most interested in, that's pretty common to see. If you maybe have some themes, like I think my, this is ancient history, but I think my application I said something like, I have a background in linguistics and computer science, and I want to bring them together. And I have, there's some things that I'm interested in from the linguistics side that I'd like to incorporate into NLP. So I think we, we want to see what your thoughts are, right, about what you, what kinds of things you're interested in doing. It's not a, a specific bargain, a, a specific agreement. It's a, how do you think, what are you excited about? I also think it's a good strategy to maybe have a mix of both, which is just like this high level area of what you want to do during your PhD. And then maybe some examples of like projects that you're interested in. But I have heard people say that, or at least I've heard concerns about this maybe being a red flag that you might very specifically say, oh, 
what the only thing that I want to work on during my PhD is to, I don't know, evaluate syntactic passing in lots of different ways. And then if there's a professor who's just like clearly not interested in that, that's maybe going to work against you and you're not going to get in at that place. And I know that's the thing that people are often worried about. So I think having a, a mix of one, just showing that you are excited about the general field and you're willing to adapt and work as the field moves along in its research is a good sign and maybe not be too tied down to just one specific problem that you want to work on. Again, I don't think this will really work against you because again, professors know that that's not the only thing that you're going to work on, but I know that it is a concern that I've often heard. Yeah. I mean, I, I think this gets, to, this gets to the question of just choosing the right places to apply to. Maybe, maybe there will be another podcast episode on uh, that delves into that a little more. It's just, it's important to have a sense of what kind of researcher your prospective advisor is and whether the ideas you're proposing are at all related to their research program. And so, for example, if, if I read a personal statement that says, I'm really excited about machine translation and I want to do this, that, and the other in machine translation, I would conclude that maybe I'm not the right fit for that student because I don't work on machine translation. That's a really well-established subfield that lots of people specialize in and not me. But there are other ideas that are not so specific to a subfield like that. And I am interested in people who have interesting ideas, even if they're not directly connected to things that I already do. That makes a lot of sense. So let's say, let's say you get this, this application, this statement that's really strong. It aligns with your research interests. You kind of check off the qualification box, Nathan, and then... You kind of move on from the statement of purpose. You go look at their CV and their transcript and their test scores, and maybe the the grades are a little a little low, um, or or the standardized testing scores are a little low. How much do those components matter relative to the research components? I would say it depends, and I should be clear that I that you know there's not one approach to reviewing an application. This is this is all from my experience. I would say that. GRE scores are probably do not matter a whole lot, except perhaps as a red flag, if you get like a really low quantitative GRE score, given that we're a highly quantitative field, that might be a red flag. But I don't know if I, I think universities, many universities have stopped requiring GREs. I would definitely not see a perfect GRE score and say, oh, I need to grab this student. That's fairly indirectly related to the work that we do. If you're an international student from a non-English uh, speaking country, TOEFL scores may matter as like a threshold for the depart for the program. But from an advisor's perspective, the grades matter to an extent. So if you're getting really low grades in NLP classes, that's probably not a great sign. If you're getting if you're getting low grades in biology because you originally majored in biology and then decided to switch, that maybe doesn't matter so much. So grades in, in courses that are relevant, uh, something we look at. But if I saw a letter of recommendation that said, this is the most amazing student I've ever worked with, that would probably take precedence over some low grades. Great. Thank you so much. I think this episode has been very informative and hopefully our listeners will find it very useful. So thank you, Roma, Nathan, and Nishant for this episode. 
Yeah, thank you. Glad I got to be a part of it. Thanks, and good luck to all the applicants. I know it's uh, stressful and time-consuming, and but don't be discouraged. If you're if you're committed to doing a PhD, go ahead and apply.